Welcome to Too Much Not Enough, a podcast about the obsessions of two very intense people. I'm Emma Winston. I'm Darius Kazemi. Today we're going to talk to you about creative process. For people listening to this, there's a little bit of background, a fascinating story that's the background to this podcast, which is that I was visiting London and hanging out with Emma a lot, and we were at a fancy cocktail bar over in Hackney. I guess we were just being ourselves, unfortunately, in front of other people. (laughs) Yeah. And at one point, our friend Tef said, you two should do a podcast. And we were like, okay. And now we're here. we're seemingly both people who actually do our stupid ideas. Right. Which is kind of what we're going to be talking about in this first episode. It's just one of those things where it's like, oh, this seems like a good idea. Let's try it. Now we're, you know, I'm in the the privileged position and Emma is too. We do a lot of stuff with audio all the time. I produce podcasts. So the idea of producing a podcast is a pretty normal thing for me. I didn't have to go out and learn how to produce a podcast. And Emma's a musician. You've got all the, you got the nice microphone already. You know how to record things. But yeah, we just kind of looked at each other and said, yeah, let's do this. And then we had to decide what it was going to be about. Right. We did have to decide what it was going to be about. (laughs) And we decided that it would probably be best to just talk about our obsessions. Because that's the core of my personality. <laughs> and mine too. And hey. But also, you know, it's good to record a podcast about something that you are excited about. This is like my dream project. This is like the project that I fantasize about in my head. Someone going, do you want to just make a thing where you just talk about all the stuff that you're really into? And here we oh. are. I've been like losing my mind over the last few hours with how excited I am about this. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, for for those of you who don't know, I'm coming to you from Portland, Oregon on the West Coast of the United States. And I am in London. So we decided to do this thing where we talk about our shared obsessions. Or not shared obsessions, but some of our obsessions are shared as we discovered. There's some overlap. There's a few things on your list that I can't even give a one sentence definition of at the moment. Same same with yours. I'm looking forward to. Yes. So some of these episodes are going to be me coming into Emma's world and vice versa. This one is just us talking about something that we are already excited about. General ideas around creative process. When we were hanging out in London together a couple weeks back, we were talking about creative process with each other because that's what we do. And uh, I was I was personally very excited to discover that you share most of my feelings on making stuff. Yeah, see, this was a thing that I already knew about you before you arrived in London, because it's one of the things that you're like known for. And I kind of didn't realize that you didn't know that we were the same person in that respect. So... All right. We both tend to subscribe to the idea that you just kind of have to like put stuff out there and not think too hard about it. At one point in your life, did you kind of like come to that realization? Because no one's born with that as far as I'm aware. I mean, it took me longer than most people to even start making stuff. And I think you said that's true for you as well. I mean, sort of. I mean, I'd always been, you know, I would like make stuff when I was in high school or whatever, but I wouldn't like release it or anything. It was just playing around in music programs and stuff like that. I used to do a lot of stuff for other creative people. Like I used to describe myself as like an interpreter rather than a creator. And I think that was entirely because 
I was too scared to even start. And I don't think I made like an original thing until I was, how old would I have been? I would have been like 25, 26, mm-hmm. 2015-ish, which is not that long ago, which is weird to think about. So maybe that's the only reason I haven't run out of ideas yet. But essentially what happened was I was collaborating with somebody who was kind of very aggressively like writer's block doesn't exist. Creativity is a thing that you make by doing is just labor. And it was extremely infectious. And even though it was still terrifying, once I'd made and released one thing, it was like, oh, okay, this is a thing that I can do and everything doesn't have to be perfect and people will still enjoy it. And even if they don't, I still enjoy it. So why wouldn't I make stuff? Right. Which is kind of really revolutionary because I spent such a long time being too scared to do anything. And then it was kind of just like almost overnight, like the switch flipped once one thing was out. It was just like, oh, I can keep doing this. I had a very similar story, at least in terms of that switch flipping. I'd always made stuff, but just would either never finish it or just not show it to anybody. Or I would show it to somebody and I would get some somewhat negative feedback. And then I would be like, I'm never showing it to anybody ever again. Ha ha. So, you know, I've been like making things since I, I mean, since I was able to make things, I just never stopped. But I was always like, oh, it's just, you know, stuff I do when I'm bored and Mm -hmm. it, you know, it's just whatever, just go straight into the trash can when it's done. And I had a moment in 2012, so I would have been 29. uh, And I had a moment in 2012 where I just was, I was talking with, it was, again, it was another person who sort of instigated this with me. It was my friend Evelyn Eastman, who is an artist. She comes from a fine arts background, but she's also a computer programmer professionally as well. And so we were talking about this sort of stuff and I was sort of coming to this place anyway, but she crystallized it for me when she was just like, well, it's like this moment where you have to like give yourself permission to make stuff. And I didn't feel like I had permission to make things and put them out into the world until a certain moment. And then when I did, it was like, oh, this is nothing. This is just, I'll just make things and then just put them out there describes my experience almost exactly actually it was yeah it's like you need somebody to be like it's fine just do it right and then once you've done it once then you can take over the permission yourself i wish i could like bottle that up and sell it to people or something i'd probably be super rich Same. But... <laughs> <laughs> was the first thing incredibly difficult for you because it was for me and then after that it was fine um No, it was not incredibly difficult for me. I mean, again, I'd made and put things out before, like little demo half-finished game ideas and stuff. I made video games for a long time as sort of my primary creative outlet. But the first thing that I would consider part of my current practice, which was started in 2012, was my bot Metaphor Minute. It's just this little bot that every couple minutes spews out a tiny Mad Libs-style metaphor. It's very simple. I wrote it in response to a book that I was reading. Uh, and actually, the book also gave me permission as well. It was Ian Bogost's book, uh, Alien Phenomenology, which is a philosophy book. And he basically has a chapter in there that says, it is okay to do philosophical work by making things and not necessarily writing. 
And I was like, oh, so this philosopher is literally giving me permission to do this kind of philosophical inquiry. Uh, yeah. So then I just did. I got the idea for the bot walking home from work one day. And I just thought, oh, crap, I have to do this. And I got home and I spent like eight hours making it because I'd never made a bot before. So I had to figure out like how to talk to Twitter and how to do authentication and how to, where do I host it? Wow. So that actually did kind of come out of thin air then, the bot yeah. thing. Yeah. Wow. I had made bots before, but not as like a concerted thing. One time I made a Twitter bot that... um I was a big fan of the video game Spelunky, and I liked all the little things that could happen in the game that uh, would sort of serendipitously occur. And so I modded my copy of the game so that it generated text, like a story about what I was doing every time I played it, and then posted it to Twitter. And then before that, a long time ago, I made an AOL Instant Messenger bot that you could send it the name of a video game, and it would tell you the Metacritic score in... Nice. return because I didn't have a phone that could look on the internet at the time. So you can text AOL Instant Messenger, or you could back in the day. So that was... <laughs> was that something that you shared publicly then, or was that kind of just made for you? The story one I did share publicly, but like no mm. one cared. Okay. But I mostly made it for myself and like three of my friends who were really into the mm. game. And then the other one was, was strictly utilitarian. It was just for me so that I could look up the scores of games when I'm in the store. So Meta for a Minute was kind of significant because it was the first sort of public-facing thing that you'd done. Yeah, it was made for an audience. I had made little games and stuff for an audience before, but I, they never felt like part of an actual creative practice to me. Um, and I always felt, like, apologetic for putting them yeah. out there and, like, subjecting people to their existence. <laughs> that sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> Same with my music, too. Like, I would occasionally make songs. Like, even past high mm. school, I would sometimes record a song here or there when the, you know, like, maybe one song a year, I would, you know, get a get the bug and write a song uh, and record it. And uh, and then I would just send it to a few friends, and but mostly feel really crappy about it. I think you had a, a kind of slightly more gradual introduction than I did then, because I, I mean, I literally went from never having written a song to releasing the first song that I'd written, which <laughs> was probably a slightly foolhardy thing to do, but like no one was horrible about it, like, which is all you can ask, really. <laughs> and even if they had been, it wouldn't have mattered because it was fun. And that's the thing. It's just, it's fun. Like... Not all kinds of creativity are going to be fun to, to an individual person. Turns out, I didn't actually enjoy making games. You know? Like, it wasn't actually a fun thing for me to do that I found fulfilling. Doing it for my career was fine. You know, I did that for 10 years. But on its own, as a creative practice, I didn't get anything out of it. I have a talk slash essay called Fuck Video Games, where I sort of like work through the process of going from like, oh, I'm I'm a video games person. I need to I need to work in video games. It's my medium, you know, it's my medium. I have to if I'm not making what I want in it, it's because I don't have the skill yet and I have to become a better artist. No, it actually turns out that I just had to like try some different media until I found ones that really like suited me and my interests that's really interesting actually that you it had something to do with you sort of identifying as 
a video games person. It had as much to do with how you felt about yourself as how you felt about the medium. In late high school, early college, when I played the games that were very formative to me, that was the moment when in my head I got the idea like, oh, this is an art form and I could participate in this art form because I am a programmer, but also creative and blah, blah, blah. You know, I started to idolize the people who did it and I wanted to be like them. And yeah, it just became this part of my identity. And I really had to like drop that and instead be like, well, what it's like, what is it that I like about video games? You know, like, yeah. what's, what's the thing that I like most? And for me, the, I would, I had like a zillion different, unfinished projects where I would build the map generator and then stop. <laughs> and when I look back on that now, it's like, oh, I just wanted to make bots that build little maps or, you know, name characters and things like that. Yeah. Like, that's what I actually would have had fun doing. And I did have fun doing. And then I hit the stuff that I didn't like. And, you know, then it, then all of a sudden the, uh, the, the creative block sets in. Mm -hmm. But really it was just, oh, well, I just hate this shit. Yeah. I mean, what are you like at finishing things now? Because I, I'm really good at finishing things. There's no way of saying that in a way that isn't... I mean, actually, there is a way of saying that in a way that isn't arrogant, because I kind of compulsively finish things. Like, if if I'm bored of a project and it's not something that I have to do, I will finish it as quickly and lazily as I can just yep. to get it to a point that it's done and I can put it out. And I don't know if that's a good thing or not. I have no idea. Yeah. But yeah, I can't same. leave things unfinished. I'm too impatient. Yeah. For me, it's about like lowering the bar of what finished constitutes until it's finished. <laughs> yeah. At what point is something finished for you? Because for me, I've said before that I know when something is finished because I'm not actively embarrassed for people to yeah that's see basically that's pretty much it for me <laughs> i mean obviously if i really enjoy it you know then great it's finished yeah as well uh but i think yeah the the low bar anything for, above actively yeah like for, for me like especially when it comes to like um programming projects and stuff it's like well is it functionally non-broken does it yeah. somewhat do what i set out to do with it Okay, it's done. That's really interesting because I I feel like I'm even closer to that with programming stuff than I am with music. So Darius and I know each other because I got really, really into making Twitter bots for like a year and then mostly stopped. Um, I say mostly. At the moment, I've entirely stopped. But who knows? But who knows? I mean, never I have an never. idea I, that I was going to do this week, but I haven't. And I am, I'm a terrible programmer. I'm like a horrible, horrible, awful programmer. And I have very few technical skills. And I feel like, therefore, if I'm making a bot, I have to be prepared to settle because otherwise there's no way I, I mean I would never have released anything like there's absolutely no possible way if I had waited until I had the skills to make everything do exactly what I wanted it to do we wouldn't be here right like just it would never have happened because I don't 
I don't have the skill set to make all the things that I have the ideas for. And there's no reason to assume that I will acquire that skill set anytime soon. Well, and I mean, even as a, you know, professional programmer on my end, I still feel that way as well. I have bought ideas, especially, I mean, you know, and my, my bought ideas might be more like, oh, you know, what if I could train an artificial intelligence in a specific way to do X, Y, or Z? Oh, I have no idea how to do that. All right, maybe there's this dumb way I can do it instead that kind of does the same thing. So I'm operating in the same way, just at sort of like a higher baseline, you know, experience level in terms of programming. So I feel like part of the reason I I kind of had that phase of making bots so prolifically was that I had so few skills that I had to just make these tiny little things and just settle. And it's interesting to me that you are someone who programs every day of his life and you're still kind of, you're going through the exact same process. I do that with music as well. I do that with other creative projects, but it fe- it felt it feels and felt particularly acute with the bots because my skill level is so low. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I mean, I think that speaks to constraints as well. You know, mm. like like you in those cases were constrained by your skills. Um, yeah. In my case, I like to constrain myself by, for example, just. What can I do in a weekend? What can I do yeah. in a in a three or four hour period? How quickly can I just bang this thing out? Yeah, I, I do that with music. Like I, I think part of the reason I released my first album when I did was that um, a friend who runs a small label was like, if you do an album, I'll put it out, but you have to have done it within the next month because that's the only slot that I have. Yeah. And so I was like, well, guess I'm making an album in a month. And that was how I actually i mean i say that it's because of my terrible programming that i made so many bots but like i taught myself to mix by mixing my own album and i had a month to make the entire thing so yeah apparently i like constraints (laughs) yeah i remember your uh your album that is just browser music Right, it's just music. Oh it was my just God. made with. I'd completely forgotten about that. I'd <laughs> right. totally forgotten that I even made that. That was like an evening of just finding things that I could make music within a browser and being like, well, guess it's time to make an EP. I'd yeah. totally forgotten about that. Yeah, that was super cool. And it was obviously the result of constraints. It was. Yeah. Which I'd entirely forgotten about. <laughs> I mean, I suppose there's, I suppose there's always constraints, but. There's something quite fun about imposing loads of constraints and then trying yeah. to make something good anyway. It makes it less scary somehow because yeah, you can well, because you can kind of point yourself. to the constraints. You can kind of point to the constraints, yeah. and, like especially for the first like sort of I don't know. I've released probably like two or three hundred projects in the last six seven years, and um, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> But but some of those projects are just like I spent an hour at lunch messing around and I got something. It's 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 if I were a um a visual artist and I told you that I made 300 charcoal sketches in the last 7 years, you'd be like, "Okay." Mm-hmm. Right? Like like that's yeah. cool. So like a that lot of these projects reasonable. are like the equivalent of a, like a charcoal sketch. But like for the first like 100 of those projects, I was still very insecure. Uh, even though I did feel like I had permission. And so it really was important to me to say, like, I made this in two hours. And so 
Like yeah, if someone has a complaint, that. I could be like, fuck you. I made this in two hours and no, I am not spending an hour slightly improving it for you. I feel personally attacked by this relatable content. <laughs> oh my God. I've just realized that I'm still doing that. Oh my God. All of the press. Oh, fuck. <laughs> do we swear on the podcast? I we guess do we swear on the podcast. podcast. Okay. I mean, my album, which was, I, I suppose, actually the most recent thing, the most recent kind of major creative Your album, project which that I've released, called... which is called Peach, which came out a year ago. So it's not actually that recent. That's how unproductive yeah. I've been this year. All of the press for that album was kind of constructed in a way that made it very clear that I'd done everything myself. Like nobody else touched anything on the album except for a friend who acted as like a second ear on the mixes and she also helped me to shoot one of the music videos. <laughs> um, and other than her, I was the only person who did... Oh, and, and the mastering engineer. There was a mastering engineer. Yeah. I wrote everything, recorded everything, mixed everything made all the videos, basically did everything myself, which was partly a budget thing, but it was it was also just that I wanted to see if I could and I wanted to kind of teach myself things that I had a vague idea of from kind of being involved with them in other people's projects but hadn't kind of taken the reins off myself. But all of the press releases really emphasised that I had done everything myself in a very short time. And I think I have kind of told myself the story that that's because I'm like proud of doing it. But I think there's also a part of me that has kind of presented it as a caveat, like sliding it across the table and being like, don't be horrible to me because I made this in a month and I don't know what I'm doing. Right. Like a defense mechanism. Yeah. That was also part of giving myself permission to do these things as well was to just, I think I see that a lot with people who do like um, drawing a day type stuff on Twitter yeah. or whatever. Like it's just a way to force it and just be like, well, it doesn't matter if it's not perfect. I just have to do yeah. one drawing a day. Mm -hmm. Do you still find yourself doing that? No, less and less. No, it's taken okay. years. It was probably two or three years. Some of it was just becoming familiar with other people doing somewhat similar work. And like after enough time, finally being able to go, oh, okay, what I do is like comparable. Do you mean in terms of quality or do you mean in terms of kind of medium? In terms of quality. Because my next question was going to be, how do you, how do you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's just, it's just, well, it's just like what I like, you know, mm -hmm. okay. like where I can just be like, oh, I really like that piece that so-and-so did. And also, I like some of my stuff just as much, you know. Yeah, I mean, I really like everything I make. Yeah, I mean, I do too. <laughs> With bots, you have that distancing. It's like this rhetorical distance where it's like, oh, I build something that says something, but I'm not saying the things. Oh my God, is that what I'm doing? <laughs> that might be what I'm doing. Oh my God. This never occurred to me. Like, I've kind of presented... Deerful as... I probably should have explained Deerful as a project. Oh, well. Um, no, how about you explain Deerful as a project? So, okay, right. I I make music under the name Deerful, and Deerful is, is kind of a singer-songwriter project, but I use synthesizers and computers instead of 
a guitar, which is partly because I can't play guitar and partly because I'm obsessed with synthesizers. I think of Deerful as being like a really, really personal project and very much about presenting myself as a person and discussing my innermost feelings and my life story in a way which is kind of presented as quite confessional, but then inherently by virtue of the fact that I'm writing it into songs, I suppose I am distancing myself from that material. And also I am kind of obsessed with metaphor, I've realised recently. Pretty much all of my songs are like, here's a really personal story filtered through a randomly chosen concept, which is inherently a distancing mechanism, right? As is putting it into a song in the first place. Right. And you might as well mark off your diaries. Yeah, I mean, is all art a distancing mechanism? Maybe. I mean, I, I feel like What's some art is... What's the most direct is... way of expressing something? I mean, language, I suppose, is a distancing mechanism. Right. I mean, I mean, everything's a distancing mechanism, right? When you get yeah. down to it, there's there's always going to be distance between people. So, but I think there are there are mechanisms that actually attempt to shorten that distance. So sometimes, I think sometimes language can shorten that distance, mm. right? Like you read someone's prose about their life experiences, and you are probably feeling closer to them than you would if you just sort of waved at each other from across a room. I want to talk about writer's block. So thinking about just creative block generally, and you, you said earlier that you are one of these people who just doesn't experience creative block. Yeah, I don't think I've ever been creatively blocked. I can't think of a time that I have been. In like, like three I don't years really of, know. of practice. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think if, like, I suppose even when... I have done creative work that hasn't been kind of like necessarily all mine, like writing parts for other people's bands or like writing prose for sort of school university stuff. I don't think I've ever just felt like I had nothing to say, which I feel like is probably not a particularly universal experience. Is writer's block like, I feel like I have nothing to say or can it be, I don't know how to say Ooh. it? If I don't know how to say something, then I just find an imperfect way to say it. Right, and that's 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 what I do as well. Yeah. <laughs> do so. Do you experience what you would describe as creative block? I do in certain areas of creativity. So uh, I do experience writer's block. Writing is just one of those things which I I love to write. Um, I do a lot of it. Um, I I've written a book. I've been paid professionally to do it, and I also do it for fun. But I do get really horribly writer's blocked on specific projects. It's never like, oh, I just can't write. You know, it's just, oh, I can't write this project right now. I could go and work on something else and maybe come back to it. Do you know what the underlying reason for that is? Because, like, yeah. I mean, most of the writing I do is, is academic writing, but I'm always writing to a brief, and I I feel like even if I don't feel like I'm doing the best work I could be doing for the brief, I never get stuck per se. So what do you think is behind it for you? When I get my most writers blocked, it's when I think that I need to be saying something like original and profound. 
or or novel or something like that, which kind of comes a little bit from my training in academic writing, where it's like, well, you have to supply something to the body of knowledge, right? You have to expand the body of knowledge out there. That's why you're doing, in theory, you know, it's why you're doing academic writing. You know, it's like, I, I don't want to say anything that has been said before, or if I do, I want to cite it. So then I get lost in like a like a, a research hole, and that stops me. And then I also just wonder, like, well, who even needs this? You know, whereas if I, I have can... to try and not think about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I definitely get, like, I get, like, research block. I completely understand the kind of, oh, God, I have to be contributing something original to the body of knowledge. And feeling like all the ideas that I have have already been said and trying to find a way in that, isn't that but I feel like that happens before I ever start writing yeah and uh, and and, a, and research block is different I actually feel pretty okay when I'm in research block mode because at least I'm at the library and I'm looking through lots of books and and whatever and I'm like doing things the the worst feeling is when I'm just staring at the page going well what the fuck do I say uh, so that's really hard for me whereas like I, I think that's also one of the reasons why bots are a good medium for me because you know, it's only a it's, a, it's a fairly new medium. So there's plenty of unexplored space. You know, if I feel like something has been fairly explored, I'll just go somewhere else, you know, in, in that oh God. space. Maybe that's why I don't get blocked with academic writing. Mm. Because I'm working in, I mean, I'm working in popular music studies, which is like about a 30 year old discipline, which is really not it's pretty new. old in yeah. academics in academic yeah. terms and i have kind of i've kind of made my academic career so far off just finding out about stuff before other people do yeah which so maybe some of it is like oh this is new there's lots of space for me yeah yeah so that's something that i feel like might be the issue as well like i didn't it's also easier for me to write when i have an editor but i often don't have one I have never written for an editor. I do find collaborative stuff easier. You know, I've been doing a podcast about JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, which is an anime that I really like. I've been doing it with two other people, uh, Courtney Stan and Elizabeth Simmons. We've been putting out the podcast one episode a week for a whole year now. We never miss a week, and every episode is good to great, I would say. I think we do a really good job. I tried to record a podcast that was just solo. It was just me, sort of what we're doing right now here, but just me. And I found it awkward and I found it like editing my own voice was just impossible. And it was, you know, whereas when, when it becomes collaborative, at least I can go, when it's collaborative, I can go, well, there's my parts and whatever, but Emma's, you should totally listen to my podcast because Emma says really cool things. <laughs> I think I might be the opposite of you. Oh, oh wow. So we're that's both just going to be out there telling people that Emma is going to say great things on no, this podcast and no, that's why you should listen. That, no, no, Darius. <laughs> First, fuck you. Um, <laughs> don't leave that in. Um, I, I actually find collaborative creative stuff to be more terrifying than solo creative stuff because when I put something out I can be like oh it's fine if people don't like it 
it doesn't matter. I don't know most of them anyway. When I'm working with someone on something, I'm like, shit, I have to not let this person down. Oh, Which, I see what you mean. Yeah, to yeah. me, that's way more terrifying because, like, you're more real to me than, like, most of the people who are going to be listening to this. Right, so I got it. if they yeah. hate it, you know, swings and roundabouts. Yeah, you hear you that, listeners? It. Whatever, go, go screw yourselves. No, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> Episode one. Episode go one. Yeah, I think some of it is, like, I feel like I have a brain that never runs out of ideas. Like, I never, I never kind of stop. Yeah, I mean, same. I, if I, if I let myself, I can, like, monologue for eternity in any medium. Whereas if I'm working with someone else, then what I do will affect what they do. So I have to be a bit more careful with myself. And I think that's actually the point at which I start to feel a little bit blocked, almost. Yeah, I think collaborative work for me requires more planning in advance than... I mean, even even for this podcast, we shared a Google Doc with each other so we could like read a bunch of the same resources so that we, even if we don't talk about them on the podcast, we're both... At least our brains are kind of in the same space and we're somewhat synchronized with each other. But also for me, it was like when I was attempting to record my solo podcast, I, I don't know, I just felt this like crushing weight of like, oh crap, all of this is on me. I am going to be forcing people to listen to just me for a finite amount of time. Oh crap, this really sucks. So I still have, I have the episode sitting on my on my laptop, but I'm like, every time I listen to it, to finish it up, I'm like, oh God, no, nobody in the world should hear this. You have a real complex about forcing people to consume things that you've done, don't you? Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I like bots on social media, because if someone doesn't like one of my bots, they can just block it and then it doesn't exist anymore. But if someone doesn't like your podcast, they can just not listen to it. Okay, that's That's fair. arguably easier to not see because <laughs> they're not going to they're, they're much less likely to to consume the entire thing in passing than they that's are. That's fair. Although although I will say that like the um you know it takes 2 seconds to read a tweet whereas someone who does sit down to listen to a podcast episode is you know they're giving a chunk of their day to you. But it's not like it it's not like when you hit the play button the door slams <laughs> the shut, slams and you're and you're locked in that room with only Darius's podcast for company, That's fair. and you have That's to make fair. it to the end. If they hate it that much, they can stop it after two seconds. I'm also a big baby about criticism. Like I, ta- I, I like I take it well, and I don't like throw a tantrum about it, you know, or anything. But I internalize it very mm. deeply. Yeah, I am exactly the same. Yeah, but when people complain about a collaborative project, there's a little bit of like a diffusion of responsibility for that. Yeah. Where when they're complaining about something that is 100% me that I did, I can internalize that heavily. Yeah, that makes sense. That does make sense. Maybe I should do more collaborative projects. Well, hey, here we are. <laughs> Here we are, number one. <laughs> if everyone hates it, you can blame me and I can blame you. And yeah, seriously. Happy. Hey, the big thing that I wanted to ask you about, because this is something I think about all the time, and then you mention it in, I can't remember the title of the lottery talk, but... So this is the talk that Emma's referring to is called How I Won the Lottery. It's a talk that I gave in 2014 
at the XOXO Festival here in Portland, Oregon. And it's about creative process. And you mention in that talk, and you also mention this in, um, I was reading one of your blog posts about making small projects earlier, um, that you, you don't feel you have any ability to judge how other people will react to your work and how, how well something will be received. And I also have no idea. And that actually has a huge impact on how I work. Like, it's the reason that I don't throw anything away. It's yes. the reason that I release everything I make because I have absolutely no idea how any of it will be received. The most popular song that I've ever written by far was something that I I wrote to teach myself how a sequencer that I just bought worked. And I thought that it wasn't good enough to put on a record. And so I just recorded a video of me playing it live and I put it on YouTube and I was like okay well it's recorded now it's all right but it's not great like it's somewhere at least and then I woke up two days later and it had like 11,000 views on YouTube and it's still it's probably the biggest driver for people finding Deerful and I get messages from people all the time asking me when I'm going to release it so at some point I'm going to have to actually release it but I think it's the worst thing that I've written and I accept (laughs) that other people don't think that but I just have no idea I've no idea what makes people like something how are you supposed to judge the quality of your own work I know loads of people who write and make tons of stuff and then they store it all up and they release like 10% of it and I don't know how you can do that because how can you predict how people will react to it? It definitely affects the way that I work uh, as well. It was really my my husband, Courtney, who told me, basically told me, like, you can't control or predict what people are going to like about what you make. That really had a huge effect on me because I think he's right. I think you can predict that someone somewhere will like what you've made. Yeah, I think that's a that's a pretty easy prediction, uh, because the answer is usually yes, as long as enough people are exposed to it. Someone's going to have bad enough taste to like the thing that you made. It's just all over the map. There's no correlation, is what it is. Yeah, I have I things that I've see. worked on very, very hard that have been hugely successful, and that feels great. And I've had things that I've worked very, very hard on that nobody cares about. And then the same yeah. with the stuff that I throw out the window that just I barely put any effort into at all. You know, some of that stuff. Some of my most popular projects are things that I did over a lunch break. Why? How? Uh, Surely this is not true for everyone. Can anyone predict the the success of their own work? I don't think so. Like, is Courtney's theory that this is a universal phenomenon? Because, I mean, in my experience, he's 100% right. But... (laughs) I think he's just right. I think I don't think anyone can, and I think people who think that they can are misleading uh, themselves. I mean, you even look at someone, you look at a, a, a hit maker, like a Quincy Jones, who, you know, is revered as, you know, one of the greatest pop music producers of all time, who can make or break a hit. But also, if you look at any of these people's, like, complete discography, no one knows 99% of it. There's all this stuff that nobody cares about. So I think a lot of it's just survivorship bias. Yeah. So why don't people just release everything they make? I know. Because it's scary. Fear. Yeah, fear. What's really hard for me is when, uh, because the blog post that you alluded to earlier that I wrote was called Thoughts on Small Projects. And 
specifically, I like the scope of bots and songs and articles and things like that. Yeah. Because same. you can put out lots and lots of them. Uh, you know, I have friends who have spent seven to 10 years working on the video game magnum opus of their dreams. And then they put it out. And some of them have literally become millionaires in the process of this and, and just beloved creators. And a lot of them, they lost everything in the course of pursuing this project. And no one cared. Uh, and not even like no one cared, like, oh, it was a sleeper hit and a few people liked it. Like, no, just no one liked it. Just nobody, you know? Uh, and it's so disheartening. I can't imagine yeah. that. Whereas, like, if I put something out and literally nobody cares, which has happened before, it's okay. I just... You just put the next thing out. I can just yeah. put the next thing out. If your only focus is this one thing, yeah, it just seems like there's so much pressure for mm. it to succeed. No one knows that you've spent more time on it than someone right. making a different bot. Like, yeah. So yeah, I feel like we've barely scratched the surface in our uh, in our time talking about this. And it's okay. We can come back to this. We, I'm sure we will be coming back to this over and over again over the course of our podcast. This is kind of the most meta of the topics that we could be discussing. So I think this is really just meant to, to frame future episodes and give people a taste of what to expect. And how intense we are. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Too Much, Not Enough. I'm Darius Kazemi, a.k.a. Tiny Subversions on Twitter or tinysubversions.com. I'm Emma Winston, a.k.a. Deer underscore full on Twitter. Uh, deer like the animal underscore F-U-L or emmawinston.me. Thanks for listening.